Warning, the following podcast has some foul language. You may wish to earmuff the impressionable. It's Wednesday, August 17th, 2022 from Peachfish Productions. It's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. I talked about an Alaska election yesterday. I focused on the focus on the horse race. The update is that Sarah Palin is in second right now. They will count more in a few weeks. But I focused on the wrong Alaskan race, and it was the wrong focus. Admittedly, I was not attuned to the key selling point of Senator Lisa Murkowski's chief rival, and that was because I heard about her in the way that NBC's Mark Murray was talking about her. You end up having Kelly Shabaka uh, uh, with second. Or the way CBS's Finn Gomez spoke of her. Ahead of Kelly Shabaka, who was backed by Trump and her closest rival in that in that primary race. But today, listening to NPR, I gained clarity. Her opponent, Republican Kelly Shabaka, is backed by Trump and will also be on the November ballot. And then they threw to local reporter Liz Ruskin. The state GOP joined Trump in endorsing challenger Kelly Chabaka. Yes, I had only read the name T S H I B A K A. Then. I heard it, and those speaking it were pronouncing it as a voiceless post-alveolar fricative. But it is more properly heard as the voiceless palato-alveolar sibilant affricative. You decide. Here's the candidate herself. I'm Kelly Chewbacca. I'm running for United States Senate. You know what this means. Given that the four candidates advanced to the general using... The force of a Trump endorsement, Chewbacca made the jump to light speed. And if elected, though Kelly Chewbacca will be a rookie, she'll also be a bit of a wookie. Now, to be clear, the actual Star Wars Chewbacca sounds like this. But Kelly Chewbacca, who claims she speaks to the Lord in tongues, sounds like this. I will oftentimes go, okay, I want to be praying in tongues, so I'll start praying. This is my prayer language. You find that funny? Go ahead. Laugh it up, fuzzball. Kelly Chewbacca came within 5,000 votes of Lisa Murkowski, and both will appear in the ballot in November. Who knows who Alaskans will pick then? In many ways, Alaska is a galaxy far, far away. On the show today, violence against the FBI or the perception thereof. But first, Nancy Pelosi's recent trip to Taiwan caused China to push back with military exercises. We could be going through that same exercise again with a new congressional delegation visiting the territory. But what do China's neighbors think about the trip? It's not just about China and Taiwan and the United States. Many Asian nations are on the tenterest of hooks. Up next, political scientist at the RAND Corporation, Jonah Blank, brings us up to speed. Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan set off a row internationally, but we usually think of that as Americans, maybe uh, trilaterally, the U.S., China, and Taiwan. China, of course, would say, actually, what you're saying is bilateral since Taiwan is China. But what about China and Taiwan's Asian neighbors? They're taking this seriously. I mean, think about Japan, some of the missiles that were lobbed by China 
ended up in the Japan exclusionary zone. Not so exclusionary. So joining me now is our guru of foreign relations, including and specifically all about Asia. He's Jonah Blank, a member of the Council on Foreign Relations, currently works as senior political scientist at RAND, was a policy advisor for the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Enough with the CV, Jonah. Let's just get to it, okay? <laughs> so what does, we could go country by country, but regionally, is there a rule of thumb as to how China's neighbors, which are to some extent cowed or at least wary of China's military progress to how they view China's claims on Taiwan. Yeah, and a lot of them really view it in the same terms, which is don't bother us with this. Don't rock the boat. There is no country in the region that wants to see China and the U.S. go to war, that wants to see China invade Taiwan, that wants to see anything happen militarily in the region. All of them basically just wish the entire thing would just go away. All of the countries in the region have very strong economic ties with both China and with Taiwan, and they don't want any of that to be disturbed. So to go away, they would object to, I don't know if they'd intervene, but you tell me, they'd object to if China did to Taiwan essentially what they did to Hong Kong. And I understand those territories are in different positions, but with their relations with Taiwan, they don't essentially want Taiwan being absorbed into the Chinese Borg? No, they don't. Although I think most of the nations in the region wouldn't really care what the politics were as long as the economics remained untouched. So that kind of gets to the point about Hong Kong. The economics haven't been utterly disastrous for the region. They've been, I would say, pretty disastrous for Hong Kong itself, but there's been a lot of flow between Hong Kong and mainland China on this. So I think a lot of the, the neighboring countries, they don't really care what arrangements uh, Beijing uh, makes as long as it doesn't uh, in interfere with their own interests. However, that's an unrealistic position. If Beijing were to invade Taiwan, it's not as if life would just go on as normal. And the people of Taiwan are not about to just sit back and let themselves be invaded. You know, not that that's what happened in Hong Kong, but that, you know, Hong Kong really had no uh, alternative uh, other than to accept Beijing's diktat. Taiwan does. So the choice is not between a sort of... Um, bloodless coup, in effect, uh, or, you know, nothing. Um, if there were an invasion of Taiwan, it would be quite bloody. Look at Russia invading Ukraine and see whether that was good economically for anybody. The nations of Asia are span a long, a wide gamut of extremely repressive, the Burmese to Western-facing democracies, imperfect democracies like Japan, but the United States ain't a perfect democracy either. Does the democratic status or impulse of an individual country have anything to say about this conflict between a democracy, Taiwan, and an autocracy, China? I think it does. And you're quite right, Mike. It does matter on a country by country basis. I mean, I'd certainly put Japan in the category of as good a democracy as one can expect any democracy to be, given that we're, we're uh, sitting in uh, a uh, country uh, that has its own uh, democratic uh, backsliding uh, to look at. Uh, but Southeast Asia has really uh, seen a lot of difference. Right now, 
a case could be made that Indonesia is the most democratic nation in Southeast Asia. 20 years ago, Indonesia, or a little over 20 years ago, Indonesia was one of the firmest autocracies in the world. So these things can change. Taiwan, I'm sorry, uh, Thailand has flipped back and forth between um, de facto military rule and vibrant, if imperfect, democracy at least three times in the past uh, three decades. Uh, so there is a lot of uh, variety here. Uh, Indonesia is quite proud of its status as a legitimate democracy, and it would not like to see uh, China kind of stamp out another uh, democracy in the region. Uh, even countries that may not fit neatly into the, uh, the camp of uh, perfect democracy or imperfect one. Uh, Singapore, for example, it was excluded from the U.S. Uh, Conference of Democracies, but Singapore very much uh, sees Taiwan as a kind of kindred spirit, and in many ways, rightly so. The U.S.'s policy is to create in Taiwan something of the porcupine model, what they weren't uh, able to do in Ukraine, arm them beforehand to signal uh, that if there were to be an invasion, there'd be a lot of resistance. What does Asia think of that development? I think that there's a lot of support for it. Uh, there's no country in the region uh, that wants to see um, mainland China uh, take over Taiwan. Uh, there's just no appetite for saying, yes, this would be a good thing. We really hope this happens. And is that just anti-status quo or is that the actual fundamentals of what would happen were Taiwan to not fly its own flag or have any um, claims to being independent? Well, I think if they're in a hypothetical alternate reality, in a universe where uh, the PRC could take over Taiwan and there would be not a shot fired, not a bit of economic disruption. Uh, everyone was happy. Um, the people of Taiwan were fully signed up for this and life just went on without the complication of two different countries claiming to represent a single China. In that alternate reality, everyone would sign up for it. But this is an alternate reality. That's not the universe we live in. So I think it really just doesn't um, get to the point of what would any country in Southeast Asia do in the case that the PRC launched a, an attack on Taiwan? Because, you know, there's not going to be a, uh, a seamless integration at any point in, let's say, the next 10 years, 15 years, the foreseeable future. Maybe that'll change sometime in the future. That's everybody's, uh, you know, hope that someday there will be a different political alignment. Uh, but, you know, we, we can have that conversation when the gist is running in, in 10, 15 years rather than uh, right now. Uh, for right now, the question for uh, all the countries in the region is, okay, if you don't want uh, to see a violent invasion of Taiwan, what are you willing to do to prevent it? And that's where the question gets a lot more tricky because the answer is, well, we don't want this to happen, but we really don't want to do anything to stop it. Do China's neighbors, of which it has 14, I think, most in the world, are they scared of China? I think everybody's scared of China, at least to some degree. Uh, even China's friends, to the extent that it has friends, you know, uh, who are China's allies. Well, the, China has no allies. The closest that you could come would be, say, Pakistan, North Korea, and then it has clients, uh, basically Laos, um, 
you know, you could maybe say that Cambodia is a client, although there's uh, some tension there. Everybody is, all of these countries are scared of China to one degree or another. Uh, you go to Cambodia, there's a lot of anti-Chinese sentiment. I was there in February and um, there's, you know, it's not as if China is seen as the benevolent big brother even there. Um, so I think everybody, friends and neighbors are scared of China, um, you know, and rightly so. Uh, China is a country that has always looked out for its own interests first. And, you know, fair enough, so does the United States, so does any large, powerful nation. Are they worried that China will act irrationally or rationally? Mm, good question. I think there's, North Korea, I think, is very much more seen as an irrational actor because North Korea is so bizarre and so different in its decision-making. There is a rationality to Kim Jong-un's decision-making, but it's, it's not your rationality or mine. It's, yeah. it's, a, it's a Bond villain rationality. Um, China, of course, is very different. And China, I would say, is a, is a completely rational actor. Um, I don't think anyone really sees uh, Xi Jinping or any of the uh, Politburo decision-making as irrational. However, what's good for Xi Jinping, what's good for the Communist Party of China, what's good for the, the nation of China is not necessarily good for its neighbors, uh, definitely not for the people of Taiwan, and not really for any of the, uh, the neighbors. Uh, sometimes the interests may uh, overlap, but they're, you know, it, it's always a Euler diagram. Uh, you know, it's always a kind of a, a subset of what the interests are. So you mentioned that China doesn't have allies per se, but that's by design. They don't want allies. They don't want to sign treaties. They like it like this. Correct. And, you know, Indonesia doesn't have allies. Uh, India doesn't have allies. Uh, you know, there, there's a lot of uh, feeling in a lot of countries that alliances are something that binds you in. Hey, uh, we recently had a, a president who uh, was very much against allies. Uh, so it's not as if China is, is uh, unique in this regard. Uh, yeah, but things it, are working out great for all those countries, if that's the model. Just to uh, opine on our last president, I mean, look at the countries without allies, and you tell me if it's working out better than, say, Western exa countries. Exactly. <laughs> that's my own injection. No, you, you make a very good point, Mike, that this sort of allergy to alliances is, uh, is not something that generally serves nations terribly well. I mean... How, uh, ask Vladimir Putin if he loves having no allies. He had to go hat in hand to Xi Jinping and saying, oh, pretty please support my invasion of Ukraine and I'll give you anything in the world that you want for it. Right. And now they have to be, an, now they have to be allies with Iran and I'm sure he's saying, oh, great, I got to go into bed with these guys. Exactly. You, you know, if you don't have alliances, you got to be, you know, you got to form coalitions of the willing and they may not be all that willing. So... I know China all over the world is doing the Belt and Road Initiative and maybe trying to have clients or people who uh, owe them money or uh, gratitude, not people, but states all throughout Africa. It doesn't really work like that in Asia? Well, it, I'd say it works about the same in Asia as it works in Africa, which is that um, it... It buys China a lot of access. It buys them economic benefits. It buys them uh, entree into regimes, particularly ones that are not democratic and where there are all kinds of shady uh, kind of side deals going on. But it often backfires on them. Look at Sri Lanka. Um, China has uh, 
invested a lot of money in building up these absurd white elephant uh, construction belt and road projects in Sri Lanka, including a a useless port, a useless uh, airport that is near the useless port, and all kinds of shady deals that are necessary to make that happen. And then the the ruling corrupt regime and family that it has made these deals with was cast out of office by the Sri Lankan people. Where does that leave China's investment? We don't know yet, but I'm sure that uh, you know. I'm sure that any bet made on the premise that the Rajapaksa dynasty was going to survive, anyone who made that bet uh, is uh, looking looking pretty foolish right now. So as far as alliances, you know, the United States uh, pulled out of TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, and they tried to, or we tried to reconstitute some of those uh, alliances and trade agreements on a country by country basis. But how important is that in terms of, okay, we had a trade alliance on the table, American politics became such that that was unpalatable. But now we're trying to be a leader in the region and to have other countries rally around us and to project strength and stability without a trade, without a large trade alliance like that. Does that put us on the back foot? Mike, you've raised, I think, what is really a much bigger and more important issue than people in Washington tend to realize. China's power is really much more about economics than it is about military. Yes, they do have enormous military power, so do we, but in the region, the military side of it is just not nearly as important as the economic side. China comes to play economically, we don't. Uh, Would TPP have brought us there to play? Uh, Well. I think it certainly is much more likely that we would have come to play if TPP were in effect than without. But right now, the countries that are actually investing and you know visible economically are China, Japan, South Korea, um, the U.S. If you look at the figures, the U.S. does not do that badly, but it's not at all visible. It's not at all the big infrastructure projects that drive public awareness and drive politics. So how much does that matter? Well, you know, if if the question is, is the U.S. there in a visible way? Not really so much if it's just um, what's the balance of trade? More important in terms of just purely of the politics and of the visibility is who's building this road? Who's building this railway? Who is, you know, who who is getting the headlines in the paper of this country is funding a big infrastructure project that's going to create jobs and going to be, you know, in my mental, in my mental space if I'm just an ordinary citizen? Right. So the the fact that japan and south korea are doing it two american allies the third and 12th largest economy in the world is that okay is that acceptable in terms of the broader issue we're talking about um i guess protecting taiwan or staving off an invasion maybe from a united states geopolitical perspective it would be better if it were seen that the united states was spreading around that money but the fact that south korea and japan are doing it is an okay fallback position it's it's a perfectly fine fallback position if we're talking about protecting taiwan it's a kind of a bank shot it's 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 a little indirect um And I wouldn't say that it's so important for the U.S. to be seen to be the major economic power. You know, that 
What would that buy us in terms of our own security? I think it should happen just because for supply chain issues and because I would much rather have um, the prosperity of the world be in places like Indonesia than in places, uh, you know, uh, that are less democratic and less, um, you know, uh, uh, part of sort of what I would consider friendly nations to the United States. Uh, I'm, I'm concerned about when the next pandemic comes, are we going to not be able to get, uh, you know, surgical masks, uh, N95s made because China shuts them off. I'm concerned about the fact we currently have no semiconductor industry in the U.S. You know, all of these things, uh, I'd like to, there to be a semiconductor industry in the U.S., but if it's not going to be in the U.S., I'd rather it be in Indonesia than in uh, mainland China. You know, or I, you know, I'd rather it be in Taiwan as well. That's a whole other discussion. But your point about um, what should the U.S. be doing to be more in the economic space I would say one of the things that we could be doing and we're not is much more in the area of high profile um, kind of uh, uh, sometimes it's referred to as HADR, humanitarian assistance, disaster relief. But one could expand that out to pandemic preparedness, uh, to pandemic relief. Um, I think it's insane that we did so little to help other countries, Indonesia and every other country in the world. Um, Prepare not only prepare for COVID, but also uh, have access to the uh, to the medical uh, supplies and supply chains they need for COVID. And we're doing the same thing for monkeypox right now. Um, more importantly, we're not doing anything for whatever disease is the next one to come down the pike. We're not looking forward, and these are the easy things because those are the things that really are in people's brain space. If we were donating vaccines, the pushback is they don't have the supply chain to need them to uh, be able to uh, the uh, the cold chain to distribute them. They don't have the the medical infrastructure to deal with that. Okay, we could be helping supply that, and merely being out in front of providing things really does get into people's uh, consciousness, and yeah. it's a way of saying we're here for something that makes your life better. Jonah Blank served as policy advisor on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. He is now a senior political scientist at the RAND Corporation. Thanks as always, Jonah. Thank you, Mike. And now the spiel. It's been a week since the FBI executed a warrant on Donald Trump's Florida estate and a little more than a week since the bedraggled voices of militancy began to be taken more seriously than they had in at least a little while. Not just talk of civil war, but TikTok talk of civil war. Someone put together a compilation of angry bearded white people and the occasional non-bearded woman talking tough on social media. Dear IRS. We the people accept your civil war. We've been waiting for this for a long time. If it's war that you think you really want, and ye shall get, there ain't no doubt about that in my mind. You fucking liberal Democrats are fixing to start something. I don't think you want You ain't uh, goddamn fucking uh, smart enough to realize and know your history well enough to know what's fixing to happen. 
A couple days ago, Donald Trump was on Fox News saying he wants to do what he can to bring the temperature down. You may say that's pretty rich coming from the arsonist in chief, but at least it's better than the kindling and oily rags he usually brings to the bonfire. More directly on this point was Mike Pence in New Hampshire today. The Republican Party is the party of law and order. Our party stands with the men and women who serve on the thin blue line at the federal and state and local level. And these attacks on the FBI must stop. On this show, I have chronicled what I believe to be a consensus, at least within the media that you and I consume, that right-wing militias and heavily armed Trump-supporting citizens are a serious threat. I think that's true. I think if we were living in Japan or the UK or Germany or Indonesia, actually, I would count the number of these well-armed individuals who've expressed a lust for violence and be extremely afraid. I'd prioritize them. I think they're the one of the most dangerous things our country has to deal with. In the United States, however, it's not the case. There are 20,000 actual murders. The threat of right-wing radicals killing in the name of ideology is relatively quite low compared to the murder that's going on all the time. And you know what's higher in the last week than the threat of right-wing radicals? The reality of Iranian-backed violence within the last couple days. Iranian operatives allegedly attempted to kill a former administration official, John Bolton, a man with Lebanese roots presumably inspired by an Iranian fatwa, savagely attacked Salman Rushdie, and a Brooklyn-based journalist and Iranian dissident, Maseya Alinejad, was stalked by a man named Khalif Metev who was arrested with a semi-automatic rifle and ammunition in his car. This doesn't even mention the four killings of Muslims in Albuquerque by a Muslim, though that man was allegedly targeting Shias. So it's not of a piece with the rest of this. But if the media wanted to, they could craft that narrative. They could make us all scared. There are many, many more actual victims of actual radical Iranian-inspired terrorists in the U.S. than there are victims of right-wing terrorists in the U.S. last week when the right-wing terrorist trope was at its ascendance. In fact, there are actually no victims of right-wing militia members. A man attempted to assault Cincinnati FBI headquarters with carpentry tools. He was killed by the FBI, and another man was arrested for making threats to the FBI. And of course, of course, of course, the authorities must track and monitor right-wing militia members. But I think if there is any group that federal officials will have incentive to track and monitor, It's groups that target federal officials. In a way, we're lucky. Historically in this country, we had to call the federal government to account when the people being threatened were from marginalized communities who often didn't get the protection they deserved. I think the FBI will give itself the protection it deserves, which speaks to a bit of the overall idiocy of the people who are threatening the FBI. Not to say idiots can't do great harm, but to say, and I want to be clear in saying this, they are idiots. When, on this show, I talked about the cycle of blame and fear and enmity flowing between right-wing militias, frightened and therefore defensive progressives, and then back to the right, the most frequent comment I got was that I was excusing the true evildoers, that it was disproportionate, that the right was doing much more wrong than the left could ever be said to be doing. And I'm not doing that. I'm not both-sizing this. The threats absolutely are disproportionately, though not exclusively, from 
from the right. Roll Call Magazine asked every member of Congress if they've received death threats since 2020. Of those who responded, and the majority did not, 70 Democratic members of Congress said they've received death threats. 40 Republican members of Congress said they've received death threats. America's a violent place. People have access to guns, but they also have access to social media where they could pose and preen and egg each other on. And sometimes that bravado results in violence. More often than not, it's in-group signaling. We can choose to believe that the right is violent or that the right wants us dead. Or to put the common perception a little more fairly, I do think there is a widespread belief that many on the right are on the verge of physical violence. There's enough evidence for you out there that if you want to emphasize that, that could become your reality. But it's not as real as the evidence showing that Iranians want us dead. Or if you count the bodies, Cincinnati nail gun guy, Ashley Babbitt, other members of the sovereign citizens movement, you could point out that right-wing militias seem to be mostly on a suicide mission, not bringing too many others with them. The threat of violence against federal law enforcement, absolutely scary. The threat of violence against local law enforcement? Well, that's real, too. In 2016, Gavin Long, a black separatist, self-identified member of the Nation of Islam, ambushed six Baton Rouge police officers, killing three. Two weeks later, Micah X. Johnson ambushed a group of police officers in Dallas, shooting and killing five, wounding nine. He, too, was inspired by racial resentment to kill cops. I don't remember at the time most in the media promoting the idea of the danger and imminent violence from disaffected black and notionally left-wing shooters towards cops. I don't believe it would have been responsible to advance that narrative, but there was much more evidence of that. You could have said that much more assuredly than you could back up the claim that someone's going to get killed over comedian-turned-podcast putt Steven Crowder's claim that civil war is nigh. Threats against law enforcement? I would not blame the left. I don't think that's fair. I don't think it's mostly people affiliated with political parties who are the source of violence against law enforcement by anarchists during the summer of 2020 who are behind Seattle's Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone where they did in fact drive out police and murders did follow. Uh, The two lawyers who firebombed an NYPD car during the 2020 protests, the Minneapolis police precinct that was burned down. In the Atlantic, the Washington Post and on MSNBC to pick three prominent outlets that have done big stories on the threat of violence from the right, was the arson at the police station coded as scary violence toward law enforcement from the left? It could have been. It probably shouldn't have been, but it could have been if those outlets were so inclined. It's so hard for me to emphasize and to convince you, if you're not prone to being convinced, that I'm really not trying to engage in both sidesism or whataboutism, but the examples of left-wing violence against local law enforcement and right-wing violence against federal law enforcement, I think are close enough in fact, but disparate enough in coverage as to at least perhaps prompt you to question the consistency at play. And by the way, the right absolutely sees this as inconsistent and that in turn drives resentment. What I don't want to do is to amp up threats from any quarter. I'm not, if, if what I've done here is to convince you, oh yeah, the left's scary too, I absolutely have not done my job. I don't want to ignore any of these stories. I think we should be aware that we tend to run away with narratives of danger when our side is the one in danger and when people we loathe are the ones perpetuating the danger. 
lift either of those conditions and we tend to see things in a much more nuanced way. When we're not threatened, it's, well, a police station is only a building, it's not people. But what about FBI headquarters in Cincinnati? Oh, that's a symbol of safety, of governance, of societal continuity. So it's something like, their angry users of Truth Social are loons, our angry users of TikTok are understandably venting. To be fair to even MSNBC, which I cited as a perpetuator of the Civil War narrative, I did come across this analysis from their host, Lawrence O'Donnell. It aired the day after the search was revealed when news stations were covering the dozen or so anti-FBI protesters outside Mar-a-Lago. Clip runs about a minute. Right-wing social media? That is a complete nuthouse of madness and emptiness. Ignore all of that and notice that 5.6 million Trump voters in Florida have not done a single thing because of the FBI search of Donald Trump's home. None of them changed their schedules today. And 74 million Trump supporters nationwide, including the guy on Twitter who said war was going to start today, have done absolutely nothing. The war guy himself did absolutely nothing today. But he did get a massive amount of attention to his tweet on television today. And virtually all of that attention (laughs) took his war tweet seriously. I say we should take these loons seriously and maybe at times literally, but not excessively. Let's not let their paranoia drive ours. And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the Just Assistant Producer, and Joel Patterson's the Just Senior Producer. Michelle Pasca, CEO of Peachfish Productions, suggests a new strategy. Let the Wookiee win. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperoo, jeeperoo, dooperoo, and thanks for listening. 